Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you're about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Senior Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldtreat. Today, I'm joined by Chris Salerno, Founder, President, and CEO at QC Capital, a commercial real estate private equity firm focused on the Southeast region of the United States. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to uh, be on here and add value to your listeners and viewers. Yeah, excited to have you on. You know, we are in the midst of what's called Real Estate Week here at Yield Street. So we've been primarily, um, you know, creating some education content and also, uh, you know, some offerings related to the CRE or commercial real estate offerings available on Yield Street. So it's very timely to have you on, and we certainly hope to have a very robust discussion uh, around commercial real estate and what some of the opportunities are. Uh, that may present themselves to uh, some of uh, the investors here on Yieldtreat. Um, but maybe to start off, you could walk everyone through a little bit about your background in QC Capital. Yeah, so uh, my background, I'm CEO, founder of QC Capital. Uh, I started about seven and a half years ago in the residential industry. So maybe like a, a ton of folks that visit Yield Street to invest, I was a residential broker, uh, didn't know anything about the commercial industry about seven and a half years ago, ended up becoming a top broker here in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, which that's where our headquarters is located. From that, I grew a company. I then merged it with the number one company in the Carolinas. We were also number fourth in the world at the time with Keller Williams. And I fell into their operational role. I was able to bring them from 94 million in annual sales to 147 million just in a year and a half. After doing so, I felt like I hit a ceiling and I was selling so much real estate that I had a handful of investors that were buying real estate and I started seeing a little bit about the, the commercial side of things, started seeing the, the multifamily. And I wanted to educate myself on the multifamily investing side because I thought that, hey, you, oh, these big banks, these big Wall Street firms, uh, insurance companies own all these buildings. I could never be a part of them. And after educating myself, you know, very similar to Yield Street's platform and everything, I realized, wow, I can be a part of these larger deals, uh, make a part of the profit, get a part of the distribu or distributions, and also the depreciations. And so after educating myself, that's when I founded QC Capital at the beginning of 2019. Since then, within three years, we acquired a little over uh, $250 million, uh, worth of real estate. We sold off four successful exits, just had one yesterday uh, for our investing partners. Uh, and we're currently on track to uh, close around $300 million by the end of this year. And uh, a billion, hopefully, by the end of next year, we're, we're shooting for, for our goal. So strictly multifamily, uh, Class A assets, uh, we're primarily focused on now. So, so perhaps let's start there in the multifamily space. Uh, maybe you could walk everyone through what multifamily is, and also how it compares or contrasts to individual home ownership or other maybe rental opportunities that uh, that renters um, might have available to them. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So multifamily, uh, if you go break it down to the definition, it's actually anything over four units is considered a multifamily dwelling. So anything over four units is considered that is a multifamily dwelling. And so when it comes to these properties that we focus on, we're focused on 100 to 350 units. So your larger class A type of properties. And one of the great great questions you asked is, is you know, why would someone possibly, you know, look to rent into a, a multifamily compared to just renting a single family? family. It's, it's very attractive, the single family built to rent communities. And a lot of people are going there and, and we're partnering with some developers on that uh, asset class as well. But with the multifamily type of asset class, we're seeing it being uh, very lucrative and the aspect of amenities. Amenities are key with these class A buildings. Currently, I know um, someone that lives in a class A building here in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and uh, she's my girlfriend and she has a sauna she has a steam room in her in her building. She has two gyms, and she also has a barista that makes her coffee in the morning for free. That those are type of amenities that Class A buildings, especially here in Charlotte, we are seeing come up on the market. And people are realizing as interest rates increase when it comes to single family market that they're getting priced out, and they're not able to afford as much as they did at the beginning of the year when the interest rates were lower. So they're going to go ahead and rent. We're seeing it a lot. I saw it when I was a broker in real estate. A lot of people are going to rent. And we're also running into the issue of supply and demand, both single family and multifamily. So if the supply is low and the single family space, interest rates are rising, people are getting priced out. The only other place they're going to go is rent. So you're seeing a lot of people, even older couples, because you're seeing a lot of 55 and older apartment communities now being developed, especially here in Charlotte uh, and in the Carolinas, is that they want the low maintenance. They don't want to worry about cutting grass. They want the amenities that these type of properties offer, that that luxury five-star hotel amenities these properties are offering. Um, and, and that's why they're moving into these type of uh, places when it comes to multifamily. So, so, you know, outside of some of those other drivers that you were mentioning, um, you know, what is the overall core thesis around why multifamily might be an attractive investment? Um, why aren't these folks going out there and maybe just buying a home, you know, for themselves and their family? Yeah, you know, I, I think times have changed. I think the American dream was to own a home uh, back, you know, my father's 83 years old. His generation, uh, I remember when my mo mom, uh, my mother purchased her first home. She was so excited about buying her first home. And that was that generation. I feel like uh, the times have changed. It's it's really not the American dream of owning your own home. It's really, you know, exploring life and creating memories. And, and you're able to do so when you're not being tied down to one single family home. You're living, you can live in an apartment complex, you can travel the world. So I think that uh, has a, you know, a large amount of uh, influx to the multifamily space. Economies of scale too. Um, I studied the 08 market prior to even getting in multifamily and realizing that uh, multifamily is a very strong asset class because the economies of scale. And we've seen that even during COVID. Uh, with economies of scale on how these multifamily properties are, are producing uh, as a return and, and how uh, you can de-risk your whole investment portfolio by having multifamily, uh, a multifamily or multiple multifamily asset classes in your portfolio. You can de-risk it very largely because it's a necessity. We all need shelter. It's not going away. There's a huge supply and demand shortage. CoStar um, put, put out a ranking about a month ago saying uh, by 2035, we need 4.3 million units to be developed. And, and that's just even to catch up to the demand. 
So, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of supply and demand there and, and it's a multifamily asset class is, is a asset class that uh, you can de-risk in your portfolio um, and, and people are, are very bullish on it and they want to live in there. So how, how do you kind of square all that away with, you know, I, I think there's some other CoStar um, reports that were out recently about, you know, ho- how, uh, housing affordability being at some of its uh, most expensive levels in the past couple of decades. Why then, you know, how do you kind of square that away knowing that, you know, certainly there's a lot of rent increases, owners are able to pass through into renters, which is certainly positive overall for owning multifamily assets. But how do you square that away with whether or not now is the right time maybe to purchase a multifamily property? Do you feel like the market's kind of a little bit elevated? Have we seen a little bit of a pullback with other markets in 2022? How do you kind of square away kind of the entry point right now? I love that question. So. I, I, I speak to a lot of investors on a daily basis. Our director of investor relations speaks to a lot of investors on a daily basis. And I can tell you out of probably over 200, and 200 I'd say 100 to 200 people I talk to on a weekly basis, those investors all have one thing in common, especially the older investors. They say they wish they would have bought a long time ago. And, and I hear that across the board. I wish I would have bought, I wish I would have bought, I wish I would have bought. I, ne- I have never heard, I wish I didn't buy and especially comes to real estate. You have to think of real estate like playing the game Monopoly. It's a long-term play. Um, The game Monopoly, we will not be done in 30 minutes uh, finishing the game. It's gonna take us hours. So you have to think of that when you are looking to add real estate to your portfolio, that this is a long-term play. It's a necessity, like I said earlier, it's a necessity. People need shelter. It's not going away. And we have a huge supply and demand shortage. I think when it comes to the the uh, the increase in rents, yes. I think we've gotten very, very lucky the past two, uh, two years. The people have sold, which we have sold for our investing partners as well, gotten very lucky with how large of a rental growth we've seen in some cities, you know, anywhere from 18 to 30% rental growth, uh, which is just mind boggling. I mean, not doing anything to these units and you're increasing it a thousand bucks. Owners are getting them, we're seeing it across the board. You know, I think that's going to taper down. I'm already seeing it taper down as I speak to other owners in Phoenix and all these other markets in the the Southeast, we are seeing it slow down a little bit. You know, the biggest thing is, is that uh, we are we are right now at a historical high of uh, of, uh, citizens and individuals of the United States having the largest savings ever recorded. So a lot of people have a lot of money saved aside. People are still spending money um, that's why the feds uh, are, are predicted to to raise interest rates next month. And also there are a lot of jobs out there and unemployment is at an all time low. So there's a lot of jobs out there. People are paying a lot more money than they used to back in the, a couple decades ago. Um, I think you're only going to see rates increase for rents. I don't think it's going to be, in my opinion, at that 30, 40% rent increase that we've seen in some of these markets. Uh, you know, there's a matter of time where those, those type of uh, rent bumps are going to have to slow down uh, and start steadying out, in my opinion. So certainly a lot of d- dynamics, you know, at play right now in terms of, uh, you know, the, the entry point. You know, when you think about kind of the operating profits that these properties can generate, certainly of, you know, revenue drivers, which are, you know, the ability to um, have these units fully leased up and ability to drive some rental growth uh, in terms of what the rent prices are. Uh, but you also have on the cost side a different dynamic in ways maybe that hasn't existed in recent memory with you know the cost of financing and debt um, increasing um, you know pretty materially over the last 12 months or so. How are the you know the under- overall management from a business perspective of these properties going? I and mean, what do you think you know some of the challenges will be looking forward? 
Yeah, the, um, you know, the overall bit, uh, for how the properties are currently performing, one thing that we like to do at QC Capital is make sure we have reserve accounts. I think that's very important. Um, if you don't have reserve accounts or have capital on hand, you can really catch yourself into a corner and into a bind. So I think it's very important uh, for all properties that you are acquiring or even in funds uh, that you may be looking to par participate in is to act, ask those operators and sponsor those sponsorship groups, you know, do you have a reserve account? Real estate is all, is, is lovely. A lot of people think it's only champagne, chocolate covered roses and, and or roses and chocolate covered strawberries, which it's not at the end of the day. Um, it, it, it can get fairly, you know, hands on. And so you want to make sure that those operators have reserve accounts, just like what we do. So for each property in our fund, we like to set aside a certain amount for a reserve account for those type of issues. If we have to go over budget for CapEx or, you know, if uh, labor or, or there's a supply shortage with uh, certain type of materials where we have to switch the materials or, you know, wait longer that we have that capital on, on deck, uh, just in case if any of those things were to arise. We've definitely seen payroll increase for our properties. Uh, we've seen that across the board to be competitive, to get great top talent in certain markets. It's very hard to hire. Um, and, and so you have to increase payroll and we've seen that across the board. And then it comes to CapEx when you're doing renovations, we've seen uh, when we get our bids for CapEx, they are high. And so we're seeing that across the board and we're adjusting for future deals that we have. But thankfully our team sets aside reserve accounts. Uh, so we have those type of expectations going into type of opportunities where we are well prepared if there is something that is a little higher than budget um, or something comes in a little higher than we expected uh, that we have those reserve accounts uh, prepared. Moving forward, I think uh, we're we're in a very unique market. Obviously, you know, Freddie and, and uh, Fannie with the debt market, I think right now, my opinion is to go fixed. It's, uh, it's too risky to go bridge. And a lot of lenders I know in the bridge industry are honestly setting aside and, and waiting till Q4. We're seeing that across the board in the uh, bridge industry from my, uh, our contacts that we have. And, and really everyone's going fixed and that's what we're doing. When it comes to fix, they're offering 45 to, to 60% leverage. Uh, it's not the good old days when we get 70 or 80% leverage. Um, so they're offering, you know, 45 to 60% leverage and you're, you're seeing sponsorship groups having to raise a lot more capital, almost, you know, 50% of the purchase price. So the deal really has to be good. And, and it's really important to stress test the deal, which we do all of our deals to make sure when it gets to my desk, I'm the final person. When it gets to my desk, I try to break the deal because we're placing and I'm placing my own personal capital into these deals. I try to break the deal to make sure it's a good investment. If you know, we, we have the debt at 45 or, or 50% uh, leverage. And, and I know that if we're buying a $50 million deal, we're going to have to bring 25 to 30 million just to buy the deal. So it, it takes a lot uh, when it comes into it, but I, I feel that uh, it's going to stay that way for the next uh, year or so. And then as things start to taper back down with the inflation, I think we'll start to see Freddie and Fannie start to taper up their leverage and then the bridge players will come back to play. So quite a few uh, dynamics uh, at play now uh, for certain, and it, you know it speaks a lot to um, you know again some of the challenges that even uh, on an individual basis, if you could go and uh, again CRE equity and multifamilies tend to be very large purchases, oh. um, something not to to forget. But the overall management of some of these multifamily properties, both from uh, the investment perspective and also there's the day to day management, um, can be quite overwhelming. I'm um, kind of pivoting a little bit. You mentioned a lot about uh, the Southeast region, certainly um, you know the Smile states, which are the coastlines, and also the Southern states. 
um, have been a pretty big focus uh, for a lot of investors, and especially you know given the fact that they're seeing these large migrations from you know some of the more Rust Belt or Northern states. You know, how does how do you kind of foresee these migrations continuing to impact the real estate markets, especially in kind of the Southeast United States and some of those smile states? Yeah, I think it's going to impact it substantially. You know, and, and there's a. I think it's going to impact it substantially. The day you're seeing a lot of jobs move uh, to the the Smile states or, or the Sun Belt, you call it Texas, uh, Georgia, Florida, Carolinas, Nat or Tennessee, where prominently Nashville. Um, you're seeing a lot of jobs still relocate there. Where the jobs are relocating uh, and the companies relocating, they're going to bring individuals there. They're going to hire more people there, which is going to increase the wage of that that city. And so you're you're seeing it. I'm seeing it across the board. The growth. Um, I think that's going to fuel real estate even more because people need a place to live. And that's why I got into the businesses is I wanted a necessity. I wanted what I wanted to be a part of something that uh, people need instead of just want. We want real estate. We want a luxurious place to live, but we also need it. And, and so they are going to find a place to live, um, whether if they're in there for six months at a job relocation, or if they're going to be there with their family and create a family and, uh, you know, be there for the next five to 10 years. Um, so I'm seeing it across the board throughout the Southeast, still growth happening. Jobs are still moving there, which that's going to just keep increasing, uh, the pop the population. Uh, and increasing rents for us. And, and you mentioned, you know, um, living out of Charlotte. Maybe that was actually in the conversation before we got started here. Um, what are some of the, the really interesting dynamics that are driving the real estate market in Charlotte in particular? Yeah, a lot of people don't uh, realize that Charlotte is the second biggest financial district in the United States. So right after Manhattan, it comes Charlotte, and then it goes to San Francisco. San Francisco did beat us out about five years ago, but we did take that second ranking back. Uh, so Charlotte's the second biggest financial district. So we're huge into banking. We're also huge into healthcare. We have a very large healthcare facility here in Charlotte. Um, that really, you know, hands the the, the Carolinas, um, and a lot of people are moving here because of job relocation. It's still, the cost of living's fairly low. It's a great place with all the different type of seasons. Taxes are, are fairly low compared to other, uh, you know, other states, especially up north. And a lot of jobs like that, low taxes. Um, they can get in here at a, a low basis. City of Charlotte, obviously, each city offers these large companies tax incentives. To move here because they're they're bringing people they're they're creating jobs um, and, and Charlotte's been doing that for the past uh, past five six years is really offering large tax incentives to these larger companies and as as you if you drive through Charlotte you'll see development is is just wild um, out, right outside of my window here to the right I see the skyline of Charlotte um, I can count yesterday I counted 18 cranes and that's only from my view it's not counting from the other side total I think I've counted one time is 27 cranes. Uh, developing office and multifamily. And then on another statistic of Charlotte is that uh, via CoStar last year, Charlotte ranked number one in the country uh, for the most development of office space uh, square footage, which is 5 million throughout the whole country. So it's uh, a lot of growth we're seeing right now in Charlotte and, and a lot of jobs are moving here uh, because of the cost of living and, and um, overall the, the tax incentives. Very interesting. And then, you know, um you had kind of discussed up front that there was a lot that your your firm focuses on, especially in the Class A space. You know, there are certainly other classes as well. All of them sort of um, you know have a purpose, if you will, um, in the whole ecosystem of of you know uh, the ability for folks to you know have access to rentable properties. Maybe you could walk everyone through a little bit of the nuances between Class A, B, and C. 
and also uh, maybe what some of the key theses are on the investment side. Meaning, a lot of people see something like Class A, and they might be like, oh, this is a great investment because it's nice, it's fancy. However, Class Bs and Cs can also offer um, you know, relatively attractive investment opportunities. So maybe you could walk everyone through some of the risks and rewards of those different classes. For sure, would love to. So prior to COVID, we were actually focusing on Class C. Uh, which are properties really anywhere from 1980, maybe high 70s, but really 1980 to, to 1990, 1995. Those are class C's and those are categorized the age of the property of being built. You have a area of class A, B, and C. If you live in a prominent area, if you normally see a Starbucks, a Chick-fil-A, a, a Target, that's more than likely going to be a class A. Uh, those those type of uh, businesses are in class A type of locations, and then it, it trickles down from there. Uh, when you see type of properties, they go by age. So 80s to 95 would kind of be a class C. Class B would be anywhere from 1995 to 2010, 2013, and then class A would be 2013 to present meaning 2013 to 2022, the property was built class A. Class A's are normally in your prominent locations in another class A area, uh, maybe in a class B area that is, is, is transitioning into a class A area, but your class A new developments are gonna be in prominent locations. Those are going to be your top of the rent type of uh, buildings. And when we were prior to COVID, we were focused on class C, so your 80s and, and 90s. And we noticed coming out of COVID, the tenant demographic in class C compared to class A. We also noticed that you're de-risking an investment with buying a newer asset because of all the deferred maintenance. Uh, and we noticed the returns were fairly similar. So that's why we pivoted our uh, business strategy to focus on class A and class B. Uh, Q1 of this year, we analyzed almost 200 deals uh, just in Q1. And we saw that that class A uh, was producing around the same amount of returns as these class C, unless you are you know, really hunting to find deals uh, and, and doing a heavy value add, that you're gonna have more risk with the older properties. You're gonna have less risk with the newer properties. And yes, the, depending on when things start to, to taper out, class A and class B tend to have little slightly lower returns than your class C uh, or, or B minus properties because you're not going in and putting 15, 16 or 12,000 per unit to, to renovate these properties. You're doing very light renovations for newer assets um, and, and you are changing the amenities and then that's where you're increasing rents through really the amenities and very slight, I would say uh, light turns on these newer assets compared to doing a heavy, heavy lift with the older assets, but they're all, anything in multifamily is, is, a, is a great investment in my opinion, uh, because it's a necessity, people need shelter. Um, and and obviously I'm, I'm sure you know, you know, we're struggling uh, with the affordable, uh, you know, affordable living in, in all cities. And so class C, B and D, or excuse me, class C, B and A are all different type of asset classes. Um, you should definitely look at all the different types and, and evaluate which ones you feel fit uh, that's best for your portfolio. And so, you know, when when you take over, let's say, Class A property, and so it's relatively newly built. Obviously, if everything was perfect, there wouldn't be much of a return on it from an investor standpoint because it would be a riskless asset. So it would be hard to kind of generate a return. You mentioned a lot of the new amenities, very light capex or kind of like capital improvement projects where you have to put money in. What are some of the risks associated with Class A that actually make it have you know a potential return that might be attractive to investors? 
Yeah. So what I, what I think, you know, with, with class A, you have, you do have a stronger tenant demographic in class A, uh, in the, in the individuals that, uh, that do pay their rent. We have a class A in San Antonio, uh, which is paid a hundred percent collections by a third of a month. I love it. Our property manager loves it. You know, she's not chasing down people for, to pay their rent. They're all paying by the third of the month. So class A tends to have a stronger tenant demographic. So you're de-risking uh, your investment there. Uh, also, when it comes to your uh, your renovations, you're not doing large renovations to these assets. And so we're normally seeing the IRR is slightly lower, but cash flow is fairly strong for these class A's from what we're evaluating. Um, and and take, take into mind that if you're not familiar with the IRR, it's initial rate of return, that does take in consideration time that your investment's been in that type of vehicle. So we, we really look at that to, you know, see what that is. But we do know that, you know, if you sell two years or three years sooner, that IR can go from 12 to 25 percent or it can go from, you know, 25 percent down to 10 percent um, because it takes in consideration time. Uh, but we're also seeing with these newer assets, with the light terms and doing like a technology package, making these amenities a luxurious five-star feel uh, that, that tenants in, in that type of uh, asset are paying uh, and they're paying for rent increases to be in that asset because they, they know that if your rent increases 200 bucks or let's just say 500 bucks, that's $6,000 more a year, well, you're, about, you're going to spend that 6,000 by hiring a moving truck or renting a U-Haul and moving in, paying a deposit at, a, at the neighbors down the street which they probably have already increased their rents. So there's no point in moving. And so we're seeing that across the board in the class A, uh, especially compared to the class C and, and B minus assets. Very interesting. And, and so Chris, kind of with where you see, you know, where you are now, uh, it's obviously, you know, wrapping up summer here, uh, kind of just in closing thoughts, you know, what are, what are some of the big catalysts that you're thinking about right now in, in the short term that might impact real estate? Yeah, I think the biggest thing in short term, we got about one more month, or actually, excuse me, September's next, next uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. Wow. Uh, flies, huh? Um, the, the feds are supposed to meet, um, you know, coming up. I think they're going to increase interest rates. So in the short term, they're going to increase interest rates. It's going to impact the single family housing market. The 10-year treasury uh, will, will um, impact the, the debt for the commercial industry. And, and we're going to see, I think, uh, a fluctuation of people moving to uh, multifamily family due to the single family housing market getting priced out with uh, interest rates rise. And uh, and that's going to increase our occupancy at our properties, which as, as owners, we're going to see our occupancy increase. So the only thing that, uh, or mainly the only thing that we have to come to mind is let's start increasing rents because we want to, uh, you know, be at a certain basis when it comes to our properties. So short term, I see interest rates rising. Uh, it's going to impact the single family housing market. People are going to move over and start renting uh, before everything cools down. Eventually, the I think the feds are going to taper down interest rates in about uh, a year and a half to two years. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and of course, to all of our listeners, uh, remember to visit Yieldtreat.com to learn more about our offerings. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. Thank you all and see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.
The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. 